WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, L- listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Yeah. Hi, Matt Kilty. Hi, Lulu Miller. <laughs> Let me tell you what I've been thinking about. Um, <laughs> hey, I'm Lulu Miller. This is Radiolab. And a little while ago, our reporter, Matthew Kilty, came to me with the story of an idea. Yeah, the idea that you were born into a sexual orientation. This is or, like the born this way idea? Yeah, yeah, the born this way idea. Okay. Which I always believed to be true for much of my life. But in the past few years, that idea felt essentially like uh, under assault. And Hmm. in these, like, pretty public ways, in ways that were happening on both the right and the left. And so it's like, on one hand, you have something like the bill in Florida. Seven, the parents' rights and education bill. The don't say gay bill. The bill prohibits classroom instruction. Where you can't teach kids third grade and below anything about sexual orientation or gender identity because the logic there is that by talking about sexuality and gender or reading a book about it or whatever, we will make sure that parents can send their kids to school, that those things will like change a kid's identity to get an education, not an indoctrination. Yeah. And the foundation of the thing is just this idea that like tiny little things in a kid's school environment is going to change them radically. So that's going on on the right. Uh And on the left... So there are many different theories of gender, and mine is just one. In the past several years, you've had these ideas that have become much more mainstream. Ideas like how social norms and cultural values and politics and history, how all these things are maybe the most important thing in shaping your own sense of self and your own sexual preferences. That again, like that it's the environment outside you... That is really the thing that is making you. Yeah, I will. And I will. I don't know if this matters, but I will just say here that as a queer lady, uh, married to a lady, someone who identifies as bi um, and someone who's like read about this stuff and thought about it a fair amount. This is the idea that makes sense to me, that sexuality, that desire, sexuality is shaped by this whole swirl of factors like that really makes sense to me. Mm. It pretty much lines up with my experience. Right. And I think. For me, as a cis straight man, um, like, I, my identity always felt very consistent, and I just never really had to think about it. And in part, you know, maybe embarrassingly, like, I never had to think about it. It was just like, I grew up in a world where born this way, the born this way idea was the thing. It was the thing that I thought you were supposed to believe if you were a good ally to gay rights. It was the thing that you use as an argument against the idea of conversion therapy, that you can just take a kid and, like, change their environment and make them into something. Mm. And it was the thing that I always just, like, vaguely understood to be something rooted in science. You had a sense you'd been told, like, this is how it works in the science. Yeah, that, like, the science is at the root of this. And I think— 
I think I should underline that this is just like the Born This Way idea was a thing that millions and millions of people believed. How do how, and, how do you know that? Like, Well, so I went Googling because I was just like, am I alone now on an island, an old man on an island? And um, there's a Gallup poll from 2018 uh, that shows that 50%, half of all Americans, believe that somebody is born that way. Huh. And so I felt like I was witnessing all the ways in which the, this born this way idea was maybe unraveling. And I just started wondering, like, why is this even an idea that I believe? Like, okay, so why do I believe, where did this belief come from? Why do I believe it so certainly? Right. And why do so many other people believe it? Yeah, because like, it's clearly, like, it's clearly an idea. It's an idea constructed by human beings that must have some sort of, like, history. And I just didn't know what the history was. And I didn't know how this thing became as pervasive as it did. But yeah, like, for me personally, like, why do I believe this? What is the truth to this? And is it, like, is it true? And if it's not true, what does it mean for it not to be true? Because if you have a right-wing front that is making these environmental arguments, trying to, like, annihilate certain types of identities, like, what argument do you then make in the face of that? Yeah. No, I wonder that. Like, I feel that. I worry about that. And I don't know. I mean, is this because of that? Like, I am interested in this story, but is this the moment to look into this history, to talk about this unraveling if there is so much real harm at stake. Yeah, I think, um, you know, talking to a lot of different people, the the point is, like, it's unraveling whether or not we talk about it. And some of the people I talked to, what they said is it doesn't have to be so frightening or it doesn't have to be so scary or that, like, the unraveling itself like staring at it and understanding why it's happening is actually possibly the path towards a a greater and like more durable protection. Huh. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't understand how that could be, but I am curious to find out. So where do you, where does this, where do you, where do you want to start? Well, okay. So I started trying to figure out where this idea actually came from, like the birth of it. Mm-hmm. Almost everything I came across. The research team's leader. Everything I read. Dean Hamer. Dean Hamer. Everybody I was talking to. Dean's motivations are what Dean's motivations are. But that rightly or wrongly. Are you talking about the Dean Hamer paper from 93? That's it. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's him. Oh, interesting. People kept pointing to this one. All Dean is saying is. Guy. Nothing in science is a fact with a capital F. That he was essentially this sort of linchpin. I think that Dean Hammer is to the idea that you were born this way. Kind of the culmination of a particular project, a several decades long process. The origins of homosexuality. Is that on? That's on. Hello. Yeah. Oh, shoot. Uh, Can you hear me? I can hear you very well. How is my mic? Your mic sounds pretty good. Good. So last summer, 2022, I began interviewing Dean. How are things over there? Things are wonderful here, as always. He's 72, lives in Hawaii. It's, you know, 85 degrees and blue skies and the trade winds are blowing. Well, that's lovely. So not too bad. And actually, the first thing I ever came across of Dean was an oral history that he did. Mm -hmm. And the thing that grabbed me about it is how there are these moments from his life that are almost like these little precursors to the Born This Way idea. Okay. And I think... Like... Well, so I think, like, one of the things is kind of like one of his earliest memories. So I was in preschool. This is in Montclair, New Jersey, just outside New York. And every day they would make us take a nap, and they would give us little mats, and we laid down, and I would lie on my stomach, and then I would start sort of rubbing around and having fantasies. And I always fantasized about... The Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger. That mythical 
lawman from TV with the black mask. Which I thought was very sexy. Chris Boy cowboy hat. And had a nice pouch in his Levi's. And in this little fantasy, Dean would hop up on the ranger's horse, wrap his arms around him. And ride around the range with him. The way he said it, he was like, I just knew I wanted to be his friend. And so there he'd be face down in his preschool on his nap mat. And I would gyrate into the mat and get a little tiny boner. And he's like three. He's He's like like three or four. Five years old. Five, five, five. But eventually one of the preschool teachers would come over and be like, Dean. You are definitely not supposed to do that. (laughs) But he says... Over the next few years, when he'd be on something like a school field trip, I would fantasize about guys that I was rooming with or that we were on the bus with. And still, it wasn't sexual. It's more about friendship. It was just like those first little inklings of desire. You know, what we might call puppy love. That thing that just sort of bubbles up. Attraction. And during any of this, are you confused by it at all? Does it... No, I never questioned the direction of my attraction. It just swelled up in me. It was just there. But this is the suburbs, 1950s. Middle class, heteronormative type of environment. So Dean in middle school would like make out with girls. Because that's what everybody was doing. Had girlfriends in high school. Including the queen of the prom. We went to the prom together. But I felt like I wanted to be with boys and I knew I wanted to be with boys, but just had no way to realize that. But then one night, Dean's at home, he's 15. And I saw a TV program called The Homosexuals. The Homosexuals. With CBS News correspondent Mike Wallace. It's this hour-long TV news report from 1967. Most Americans are repelled by the mere notion of homosexuality. And in it, there are gay men. Lit indirectly so that you couldn't see their face. This man is 27, college educated. Talking about how horrible it was to be a homosexual. I had one friend who was beaten savagely by his father. About violence they endured. And he beat him, in fact, with bricks. About how they couldn't maintain relationships, about how they felt like they had to hide. That it was a sickness. I know that inside now I'm sick. And I'm sick in a lot of ways. I looked at that and thought, oh gosh, that's who I am that they're talking about. And it was truly frightening. Did it make you feel some sort of shame or like I would think I'm ill or something? I didn't feel that. I felt really angry because it it wasn't right, and it was who I was, but I couldn't think of any way around it whatsoever, and I knew I better keep my trap shut. But then, 1969, Dean graduates from high school. I'm smoking a lot of pot. <laughs> Once he finishes undergrad, he applies to Harvard Medical School. To my surprise, get in there. So I head off to Boston. And it's in Boston that Dean encounters these two very, very important things. The first, gay liberation. This very new part of the gay rights movement that is about being out, that is about gay pride. My sort of first taste of activism. And it's not as though Dean would become an activist, but... I went to my first gay pride parade. Literally scary. People throwing beer cans and the like. In Boston, he sort of swept up in a sea of a movement where you can... And I was like, whoa. Go to gay bars. This is pretty good. You can have a boyfriend. At one point, I fell in love. And how was it? It was amazing and fantastic. (laughs) But the other thing Dean would encounter in Boston was something that, for better or for worse, a part of this very gay rights movement would come to rely on him for. Genetics. He basically stumbled into it at Harvard, fell in love with it. Because you're studying the blueprint of life. 
it explains everything. I mean, when you start, you're nothing but a little spool of DNA surrounded by a coat. That's all that you are. So all of the instructions for everything that we develop into is hidden in that piece of DNA. That was the promise of it. And that promise would end up entwining Dean and the gay rights movement. So I decided to go work with... So mid-70s, Dean gets his PhD from Harvard. He goes down to D.C. The National Institutes of Health. To do genetics work there. It was all very basic science. Figuring out how genes turn on and off. How your blood carries oxygen. Really technical stuff. How copper islands induce the metallothionine gene in Saccharomyces cerevisiae. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> so, it, sounds, so, it sounds very boring. Very boring. <laughs> and uh, he was actually like, it was kind of big and important work, but the details of it were horrendous. And uninteresting. But he does the boring stuff. For a good 10 years. And so cut to... I'm 40 years old. It's now 1991. I have a stable career at the National Institutes of Health, but I don't really want to spend the rest of my life working on something that fewer than a dozen people in the world appreciate, and that I want to do something that's bigger than that and that's more important at that. I mean, it's the whole reason he got into this, to uncover something fundamental about nature. At the same time... So far tonight, we've been bringing you news of the world around us. There's this revolution happening. Now we have news of the incredible world inside us. The very beginnings of... What is called the Human Genome Project. The Human Genome Project. A vast effort to map man's entire genetic system. Scientists begin mapping out and identifying every single gene. The very building blocks of life. In our chromosomes. It's essentially like having an encyclopedia of man. In principle, we'll know the complete set of instructions which made people. And for people like Dean, it was new and exciting. The belief was this is the thing that is actually going to unlock all of that mystery. Hidden in that piece of DNA. And not just the basic stuff. From hair color to height. But personality traits. Shyness, aggression. Empathy. Thrill-seeking. Alcoholism. Intelligence. Mental illness. Depression. Everything about life. And so I started thinking about, you know, what are big questions? And it just occurs to me that... Wow. Attraction. Desire. Sex. It's so important. To Dean, it has to be encoded in us. Because the driving force of evolution is to make organisms that can have more organisms. In other words, sex drives everything. What could I learn about that? And so is he immediately like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, is there a, is there a genetic component to homosexuality? Well, actually he says like, no. Dean says he really just wanted to learn about genes and sexuality. And the first thought he said wasn't even about himself. It was, hmm, you know, because I'm gay, I know where I can get subjects. Other gay people. Because whenever you're interested in a trait, the only powerful way to study it is to study the minor version of the trait. Because if you study something that everybody has, it's almost impossible through genetics to figure out how it works. So the hope is by studying gay people, like that's actually the path into understanding the genetics of sexuality more broadly. Huh. So they're really, he says it wasn't at all about like homosexuality or trying to figure out what makes him the way he is. No, I mean, everything I read of or from Dean, everything I've seen him say publicly and what he told me is, no, like it was just trying to understand sexuality hmm. and this being kind of the only way to do it. And so he and his team, they decide they're going to start with 
gay men. Okay, so dudes, just dudes first. Right. So basically, he pitches this to his bosses at the NIH. I got the green light. And he began. So we started placing advertisements. In gay papers. Went to the HIV clinic right at the NIH. Went to a group called PFLAG. Parents and friends of lesbians and gays. And Dean said when he would interview these gay men. Right off the bat. Almost all of them would say. It was just there. Like Dean, they'd always just felt this way. But if you're going to show that that has anything to actually do with genetics, what you need are families. And so he's like, okay, do you have any brothers? Do you have any sisters? Are they gay? What about mom? What about dad? Cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents? Do you think any of them are gay? And I started traveling all over the country. California, Pennsylvania. To the deep south. To the great heartland. And he would sit down with these family members and ask them all these questions. Basic information about their age and their birth. Then I would ask about their own sexuality. You know, when was your first sexual family? Fantasy. What did you fantasize about? For example, if you masturbate, who do you think about? Is it another guy or is it a woman or both? How many different people have you had sex with? How many men? How many women? How frequently? How do you have sex? Do you do oral? Do you do anal? Do you do uh, masturbation? Do you do rubbing? Yeah, that's the basis of a sex interview right there. <laughs> And it was easy with a gay guy to ask, how often do you have sex and do you have anal or oral? It was a little bit tricky doing that with her great aunt in Duluth. <laughs> but so Dean does all these interviews. He collects blood from everybody, uh, eventually goes back to D.C. Mid-1992 or so. And this takes him like a whole year. By that time, I have about 100 or so families, a little bit over that. He starts drawing out by hand these family trees. With squares for men and circles for women. Filling in the circle or the square if definitely gay. Blank if definitely heterosexual or thought to be heterosexual. And a big question mark if we're not sure. When he's looking at him, he notices this thing, which is that the gay men in a family... There's virtually none on the father's side of the family. They're on the mom's side of the family. And it was like a light bulb went off. Because for geneticists, if you see something coming down the mother's side of the family, it means it could be on the X chromosome. So oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, a man has an X and Y chromosome. The Y comes from the dad. The X comes from the mom. So anything on the X chromosome tends to come down the mother's side. To get DNA, you just take a little blood. They do a bunch of fancy science. Add a couple of reagents, shake it, pass it through a filter. And he starts combing through many of these gay men's X chromosome. The entire chromosome. When he finds this tiny little... Rainbow. <laughs> no, Lulu. No. Tomorrow's issue of Science Magazine contains the results of a National Institutes of Health study. He finds this little genetic tweak. Which shows that male homosexuality may be genetically determined. And it was this... New evidence today about what causes a man to be homosexual. Little bit of DNA. The origins of homosexuality. That would become to some a source of comfort or a confirmation. To some a misstep towards greater injustice. But maybe most importantly to some it would become this very powerful weapon. Is it something that happens at birth? Or is it a lifestyle? 58% are against legalizing gay marriages. It is a cultural war. We're mad as hell and we're not gonna take it anymore. But this war is for the soul of America. We're sick and tired of saying it is wrong. It is an abomination for a man to We will be free. All that in just a moment. 
Radiolab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about you and your money. You like your free time. You like to relax every now and then. You like to feel totally chill. But your money, your money likes to work. And Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. While you're catching up on sleep, your money is up early, earning 11 times the national average in a high-yield cash account. Your money is a multitasker, diversified in expert-built portfolios of low-cost ETFs. And your money is optimized with automated tax-efficient strategies, just like the pros use. Your money is a total workhorse, so you don't have to be. Because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Radiolab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. When you see actor Danielle Brooks on the red carpet at the Oscars, she will be in full glamour and in grief. I've been with Sophia for so long, and I just know, like, after the Oscars, that chapter is really done, and that saddens me. I'm Kai Wright, a star of The Color Purple, honors the role that shaped her career. Next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Radio Lab, Lulu. Matt. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. It feels like right. a bit of a short shrift. <laughs> Matt Kilty. Thank you. <laughs> Straight report. Um, uh, okay, all right. So we are we are here talking about the birth of the born this way idea, where it came from, how mm-hmm. true it is, all that. Yeah. Um, and we left off. Dean had found some genes, like genes that he thought. What exactly? Like, did he think that these genes fully predetermined a sexuality, a person's sexuality? Or? Okay, so actually. I mean, well, technically what he found is like a little region that maybe contained a gene, some genes. That's sort of the question. Like, what do the results actually show? And I spent a long time looking into this, into the science of this, Dean science, uh, other science. But then I stumbled across this paper that made me realize how the science like isn't just the thing here. And in fact, to understand why the Born This Way idea really took off you have to understand the world outside of the science. So exciting for me to talk to you, truly. And that the born this way idea is kind of the culmination of a particular project, a several decades long process. Oh, two things before we really jump in. One, because I always forget this. If I could just have you say your first last name and then uh, however you want to ID yourself, like title at work or whatever. Oh, sure. Um so it's pronounced Joanna Wiest. 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 Great. And I am an assistant professor of politics at Mount Holyoke. So Joanna wrote a dissertation, um, which is the thing that I saw, about how the true origins of Born This Way go back to much earlier than Dean. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So where would you want to start? So I think that the natural place that I would begin is in the 1950s. 
because that's when we see the founding of the Madison Society. One of the first nationwide gay rights organizations. Also the Daughters of Belitis, a lesbian organization. Both of which were predominantly white, middle class. They had dress codes on the books. Men had to wear ties. Women couldn't wear jeans. I guess it's hard in terms of today to think, to really understand what was going on in the 50s. This is from an oral history of Del Martin, who was one of the co-founders of the Daughters of Belitis. I mean, the fear and the paranoia was just Fears. Thousands of suspected gay people were being kicked out of the government. There was, um, you know, fear of losing your job. He's been in jail three times for committing homosexual acts. Of being arrested, thrown into jail. Or thrown into a mental institution. Yeah. Because at the time... Homosexuality is, in fact, a mental illness. The argument was that homosexuality was a psychological defect. Which has reached epidemiological proportions. That was literally the American Psychiatric Association's definition homosexuality was a mental illness. It's all the parents' fault. The idea was... Relationships to the father and the mother. That it was caused by the environment at home. And having a profound effect on the final pattern of the individual's sexual behavior. And so at that point, we needed validation. Dell says that she and most of the gay people she knew were like, we know we aren't mentally ill. But we still have to deal with, with the rest of society. And Joanna says that these early gay rights organizations decided that the way to deal with the rest of society to fight off the argument that homosexuality was a mental illness in the minds of the public was to turn to science. And start collaborating with... I feel, from the many years of work... Psychologists and psychiatrists... That a homosexual is, first of all, a human being. Yeah, we were guinea pigs for uh, researchers. Research being a way to get rid of the sickness label. And so... They start going to psychiatric conferences... Sitting on panels... Making inroads with more researchers... To say that these people aren't sick. And I do not look upon homosexuality as a neurotic problem. That being gay is not a mental illness that being gay lies deep in the individual's uh, nature. That it has nothing to do with your parents, that it's essentially natural. And then you would hear this idea Well, I was going to add that from somebody like Hal Call, who was the president of the Madison Society. That this whole business of homosexualism is just one of the things that exists in nature. That it's essentially a natural variation of the natural world. Which, you know, no one's saying that a homosexual person is born that way in a strict sense. But it's that word nature. It's that word nature showing up and starting to put some sort of boundary between the environment and something else that's going on inside of a person. And what happens is over the next 20 years, psychiatry and psychology starts to undergo this really big shift. So when we get to 1973... It's huge. It's so pivotal. The American Psychiatric Association drops the definition of homosexuality as a mental illness. And those prominent gay rights activists who had made these relationships with folks in psychology and psychiatry... They would lean on those allies to start trying to make bigger changes. Exactly. And so Joanna says all throughout the 70s... Gay rights litigators are bringing all of these scientific experts into court to serve as expert witnesses. Now, what you see on the other side, like the anti-gay conservative side, is that their rhetoric in these court cases also starts shifting. He was relieved of his classroom duties because he is a homosexual. So, like, a teacher would be fired for being gay. We are modeling behavior all the time by what we do as well as by what we say or teach in the classroom. Because their homosexuality is kind of seen as a contagion. Like, that's the rhetoric, which feels very much like... One word, 
groomer. The grooming seven-year-old. What you see from conservatives today. This is propaganda for grooming. It's groomers pre-groomers. Yeah, exactly. This idea that... There are definite overtones that children will catch, yes, particularly children of today. Sexual orientation is modeled, it is learned. And in response to that... Pioneering scholars and clinicians... Would come into the court as expert witnesses. To say things like, this high school teacher couldn't change the identities of these students because whatever is causing those identities, those ideas are already going to be set in stone within the first few years of a child's life. Which doesn't mean that the environment still couldn't be playing a role here, but it is pushing the origins of sexual orientation to something much closer to, like, birth. Implying that homosexuality or even heterosexuality is essentially innate. That you're saying in the context of these court battles that, like... Yeah, but it's not just, like... um, court cases, like these scientists are coming to annual conferences held by gay rights organizations to teach them about the science of sexual orientation. And that the origin of sexual orientation might not be rooted in psychology, but rather biology. That's interesting. So you're saying there's almost like this gradient. Yeah, it's it, like a gradient. Yeah, exactly. It's like this shift from psychology to biology and not just biology of like the natural world of nature, but like human biology. Which is the beginning of what we eventually will see as a born-this-way rhetoric. Also, did you come across Carl Bean during your research? The disco song? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Carl Bean. Have you heard of Carl Bean? No, I have not. I'm not familiar with Mr. Bean. Okay, so Carl Bean, Mr. Bean, uh, (laughs) gay black man, activist, disco singer, 1977, puts out a song called I Was Born This Way. What? No. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm walking very good. Mm. Ooh. Ooh. Come out onto the dance floor. <laughs> I would dance to this. It's amazing. <laughs> oh my God. Listen to the words. Okay. You laugh at me and you criticize because mm-hmm. I'm happy. Yes. Carefree. Uh-huh. And gay. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it ain't a fault. It's a fact. I was Wait, so Gaga ripped off Carl Bean? Oh, uh, well, that's a loaded question, but but no, she, I mean, she said multiple, like, she said in many interviews, the song was inspired by Carl Bean, the album was inspired by Carl Bean. I guess what we can say is Carl Bean is in the vanguard here. Okay, Joanna's point is that the ingredients are there, it just feels really early. Born This Way was still not there as, like, a full-throated message yet. Because, like, the science wasn't really there. But then once you get into, like, the mid-late 80s, you have somebody like Judd Marmor, who was the former president of the American Psychiatric Association. He was an advocate and collaborator with gay rights groups. He's beginning to place extra emphasis on biological factors. These were studies that were done by the mid-80s that were looking at sexual orientation and, like, hormones and brain development. That perhaps something happened in utero. And so the idea is, like, if you are a male fetus, you are being kind of bathed with estrogen in utero, and that's going to influence your brain development, which is then going to feminize you and to make you uh, into a gay man. And as you can hear there, there's a lot of assumptions about what it means to be a gay man there. It's estrogen, which is a female hormone, allegedly, which is going to give you feminine qualities that are baked into your brain structures. And that's where you start to see biology really take hold. Hmm. So you can see how, like, there's these mainstream cultural assumptions of what homosexuality is that are a part of this work in the 80s. Um, But 
what happens and what like it's the same thing that's been happening going back through the 70s, the 60s, into the 50s when this all started is gay rights activists are going to take this work and fold it into their civil rights campaign, into their public messaging. But how many but that's not like a monolith, right? I mean, were there it sounds like we're hearing about some of the gay activists, but like were there other I mean, were there people who were just like, eh, don't grab onto this? Yeah, because... no, for sure. There were people like Martha Shelley. My feeling was, why do you need some psychiatrist to tell you you're okay? A co-founder of the Gay Liberation Front. Which has all these arguments that we want to refuse help from expertise. Here we were trying to supposedly climb the ladder to respectability step by step. And I would feel like, well, hell, the right thing to do is to say, screw it <laughs> to the system. And the Liberation Front was active in the late 60s, early 70s, basically being like, who said that clinicians get to say anything about our sexualities one way or the other? The word liberation means change, openness to something new, seeing yourself as a person who can be fluid, uh, who can do other things than whatever somebody prescribes for you. And by the late 80s, Early 90s, there were also people in academia like Judith Butler arguing that the environment, culture, social interactions, fluidity, all these things were essential to understanding human sexuality and also gender identity. So you're saying there was like, there's a cauldron of ideas here, of course, like there's nuance. Yes, but those ideas are more fringe, they're more radical. And the mainstream of the movement, the most powerful part of the movement, is going to continue to hitch itself to this developing biological point of view. And then... There is some new evidence today about what causes a man to be homosexual. Two years before Dean's study, December 1991... A new study suggests that the answer, to a very large degree, may be found in a person's genetic inheritance. Genetics, which in the 90s was like biological determinism on steroids... That shows up. Researchers at Northwestern examined 167 gay men and their brothers. So basically, there's a twin study that comes out. A twin study is like a shorthand way for scientists to measure the potential genetic influence on a trait. So these researchers look at adopted brothers all the way up to identical twins. And found the more similar the brothers were genetically, the more likely both would be gay. Which leads one of the researchers to say... A substantial proportion of the causes of male sexual orientation are genetic. Some scientists criticize this latest report as simplistic. Indeed, many predict the roles of environment and heredity will continue to be debated unless scientists can actually identify genes responsible for homosexuality. Again, so that's 91. Okay, and that is where Dean comes back? Yeah, exactly. 91, he's pitching the NIH. You got the green light. He starts doing his interviews. You get DNA, you just take a little blood. Combing through these X chromosomes. When Eureka. They find the little genetic tweak. And the tweak, they found it in pairs of gay brothers. They were looking at gay brothers because gay brothers reduces the amount of just like randomness and chance that could be involved here. Hmm. And they find this little tweak in almost all of the pairs of gay brothers. And I think it was it was about like 80 men were involved in this it study. Is, it is weird, though, just to th- sit with that for one sec. Like that's less than 100 people. Yeah, no, it's small. So what does that mean in terms of, you know... What does that mean? Well, so to Dean, what it means is that this little region of DNA is playing some sort of role in determining these brothers' sexual orientation. But how strong a role it's playing uh, is difficult to estimate. Like if it were potentially completely determinative, every gay brother would have had this gene, but they don't. It was more like tilting the scales a bit. It was like a little nudge. Yeah, that's all we said. Yeah. A little bit. 
perhaps. Right. But a week before the paper gets published... July 1993. My phone just starts ringing off the hook. Word got out about the study. And I get called by the New York Times and the Washington Post. The LA Times, major magazines. Pretty much every major TV network. And what exactly are they asking you? I think the first question was just, what did you find? And Dean would say... A statistically significant correlation between markers on XQ28 and male sexual orientation. And then everybody sort of crossed their eyes. <laughs> but he says the very next question you get from these reporters was, well, what does this mean for gay rights? Because this was 1993, that was like the question. The first presidential campaign in which gays and lesbians have begun voting in a block in their own self-interest. Earlier that year, Bill Clinton had taken office. I have a vision and you're a part of it. He'd run a campaign that was responding to the gay rights movement. The first time in the history of this country our issues are being discussed. And so leading up to Dean's research, Tonight, all over the news, it's gays in the military. You've got things like the ban on homosexuals in the military. Don't ask, don't tell. The Gay and Lesbian March. One of the largest demonstrations ever in the nation's capital. There's also the beginnings of marriage equality, debates about homosexuality and sex education. Some on the religious right are running a TV ad campaign. And so people wanted to know, in the midst of this whole conversation, if genetics are a part of it, what does that mean? For gay rights. And Dean would be like, well, I don't know. That's not a scientific question. That's a social question. It's a political question, but it's not about the science. Dean Hamer, a senior researcher. But then Dean gets a call to come on a very popular show, Nightline, to talk about his work. And I was like, no, because that's not, that's a discussion show. It's not really a science show. And they're like, well, we're going to talk about it anyway. So I was like, okay. And I should point out that Dr. Hamer wants only to refer and to comment on the scientific aspects of the story. But then Ted Koppel leads in with this question. If the findings of the study, Dr. Hamer, are confirmed, will it then be accurate to say that homosexuality is not optional behavior. And Dean... What we found is that... Basically just sticks to his science. One specific region of one chromosome is linked to homosexuality, at least in some men. But... Koppel pushes it a little bit further. Will it then be possible at least to say that it is not a purely behavioral thing, that there are inherited... There traits. are definitely inherited characteristics which are very important. That's correct. But and, and how important? Well, previous... I am unwilling to go to the lengths he wants me to go to. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to get you to put it in as sure. commonplace a language as you can so that we all understand it. And Dean's like, look... Homosexuality is not simply determined by some single gene. What's important today is that we've clearly demonstrated that genes are involved. And really, it's nearely at the end of this 30-minute-long episode that Koppel just finally asks... The thing. Back to the science of this, Dr. Hamer, and ask you to what degree is it appropriate based on the findings that you have reached that gays can say, look, it's not a matter of choice. It is predetermined, in a sense, genetically. Basically, are you born this way? And it was almost as if, like, that word choice unlocked something in Dean. I think all scientists that have studied sexual orientation already agree that there's very little element of choice in whether or not people choose to be gay or heterosexual. Wait, wait, all, all scientists say there's no choice? Well, there's very little choice. Is that even true? Did all scientists think that? Well, okay, so... Well, previous studies have suggested that... Dean is referencing all of the stuff that we talked about, the child development studies, the hormone studies, the twin studies, all that stuff, plus his work 
that he believes tells him that there's very little choice involved in sexual orientation. Have they heard of bisexuality? <laughs> Did bisexuality not exist in people's minds then? Wait, hang on. I'm sending you something. I'm sending you something. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> the cover of Newsweek with the headline. Not gay. Not straight. A new sexual identity emerges. Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, so that's 1995. That's two years after Dean's work. Okay, but anyway. So, well, just uh, the only reason I'm bringing that up is, well, I guess you could just, it's like, it's just like there's choice in every aspect of it, which is part of what makes it so darn fun. Right. I think what's tricky about it is there's like this question of what are we talking about when we're talking about choice? Uh, I think I was, I think I was and I talked about this a lot with Dean. So you think because there's some sort of genetic basis, that means what? That we don't have any control? Oh, it's within our control to to do what you do, including who you have sex with. But Dean believed that what he found showed that when it comes to sexuality, you can no longer make the argument that it's purely a matter of choice. It's something much deeper than that. It's like the thing that strikes you about somebody, like the way they, they laugh or like the shape of their mouth or whatever, like those flickers of desire that just emerge from within you. Sure, I get that it feels bodily. It feels that it's just like intuitively that you're not controlling it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's genetic or like biological. I mean, plenty of things that feel deeply rooted come from our environment, our culture. Like that, that's how it works. It gets in there. Right. No, no, no. I think, I mean, Dean- uh, There could be environmental factors. We'll say, sure. It could also be very specific things that happen to you during life. There could be an environmental influence on something like sexual orientation. But to him, because the gay brothers have that little genetic tweak that at least to some degree genes are involved. OK, well, maybe this is what I'm struggling with. Like th this is taking one study that is only on gay men, no women looked at, no other genders. And then this one other pretty small twin study, again, only about gay men. And to make a claim about genetics being involved in sexuality as a whole, like that just feels that that feels like a pretty big leap. Right. And I, I do think that this is important, which is like, if we set genetics aside, in some way, obviously, this was something that Dean had always felt about himself. That for me personally, sexual orientation wasn't something I chose. It just said something that developed in me. Going back to being five and feeling feelings about the Lone Ranger, like it was just there. And Dean says those feelings, how would he have modeled them? How would he have learned them? Because... You know, who would be the teachers? It was Montclair, New Jersey in the 50s. And if anything... Well, I know that inside now I'm sick. The environment was telling them... I'm sick in a lot of ways. Don't have this desire. Get rid of it. But I couldn't think of any way around it whatsoever. And sure, Dean had girlfriends in high school, even in college. Just like an unbelievable hottie. I mean, she is really good at sex. <laughs> he has this three-week affair with a woman. And then I'm just like, but it's just not what I want. It's just not. There's just this persistent desire he has... And so to have that experience, to become a geneticist, to find this tweak in gay brothers, it's a confirmation of something that he felt all along and that he believes to be true, that there are probably genes in all of us that are playing a role, even if that role... Like tilting the scales a bit? ...is just like a tiny little nudge. But... It being 1993. The Human Genome Project. And the way that the media. will know the complete set of instructions. Talked about genetics. Which made people. And Dean's work in particular. He found a portion of DNA. 
was basically like that appears to determine sexual orientation right here this is a picture of the entire x chromosome is the proof and this is the area believed to be associated with determining human sexuality that you are indeed which points strongly to a link born this way between homosexuality and heredity and in fact think about it for just a moment this oversimplification think only about the legal implication suddenly created this new very powerful legal tool for the gay rights movement to use. While it is constitutional, for example, to prohibit certain behavior, it is not constitutional to make status such as race illegal. In other words, you can make laws that target certain types of behaviors or actions that people take, but you can't make laws that simply target somebody for their identity. This is the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment that we're all treated equally under the law. But the thing about equal protection and the thing about identity under the law is that there's this weird catch. Yes. So, and I think we're starting to get into this idea of immutability here. Yes. Yeah. yeah so this requires getting just a little bit into the weeds to really get, but so That's right. there is Let's kind of... Let's get into it and we'll just see where we go. <laughs> I'll do it quickly. Um, <laughs> so Joanne explained that going back to the 1950s, the Supreme Court started making these rulings saying that certain types of identities get special protections. Yes. Race, sex. Being foreign born is another... And the court said one of the reasons why these identities get special protection is because they are... Immutable. Meaning that identity is something that is deeply held through chance, luck, or, quote, an accident of birth. Meaning, like, you didn't choose this identity, you have no control over it, and therefore... Therefore, legally, you shouldn't be held culpable for anything pertaining to your identity. Mm. It's seen as the gold standard of civil rights protections. And so many in the gay rights movement, many gay rights litigators look at Dean's work and think this is a really powerful thing that we can use. And so whenever they can, they're going to bring biologists into court to say gays and lesbians are immutable. And so the born this way idea shows up in military exclusion cases, sodomy cases, marriage equality cases. And I get called up anti-discrimination cases and asked to testify in Denver, Colorado. Stunned and angry with voters who said no to homosexual rights laws here. In 1992, voters in Colorado had overwhelmingly voted for an amendment to the state constitution that said if you were fired for being gay, if you were denied health insurance for being gay, you had no legal recourse. You couldn't claim discrimination. I mean, hate is okay. You know, they just made it okay. A bunch of other cities and states put forward similar ballot initiatives. And this anti-gay front, their argument was... It's a choice and... Being gay. People aren't born that way. They just become that way or they choose to be that way. And because it could be changed, so they thought... This was the lead attorney, Gene Dubofsky. It would mean that they weren't entitled to equal protection under the law. So Gene started grabbing experts. Psychiatrists medical doctors to come testify in court that, wait a minute, sexual orientation has a biological or genetic basis. And Dean did come and testify about his work. Which tells us that there is at least a substantial genetic component. It's not purely a choice. And all of this was kind of what Joanna was referring to. Kind of the culmination of a particular project, a several decades long process. To use science in the courts to argue for civil rights, but also to define the nature of homosexuality. That it's fixed. That it's immutable. We'll hear argument next. In now, whenever these cases... Lawrence and Tyrone Garner versus Texas. Ended up making it to... Obergefell versus Hodges. The Supreme Court. The intimate and committed relationships of same-sex couples. The justices use legal principles like privacy and due process to give gays and lesbians more civil rights than they previously had. 
but they don't touch immutability. Exactly. They refuse to give gays and lesbians this special protection under the 14th Amendment. Which I think is a good thing. But I'm a little confused because, I mean, you testified in court. Well, I think I felt right from the beginning that the naturalness of sexual orientation was something that was really important. And I do think it's important to have correct and true information. But for me, immutability is not a requirement for human rights. It just doesn't enter into the argument at all. But I think that the argument of immutability affects people's perceptions and affects people's beliefs in a very deep way. And ultimately, what is decided legally depends on what people think about things. We think that we have this, these laws that are somehow abstract, but really they're based on people's opinions about things, what's good and what's bad, what's moral and what's immoral. And that information that sexuality is something innate, that affects people's opinions and that in turn has a big effect on the law. And do you know, I mean, do we know if there was like a a sea change just in what your average Joe believed? Well, let me take way too long to answer that question. (laughs) Joanna says (laughs) Dean's work definitely impacted public opinion. And and actually, right after it came out, the born gay narrative, you could see it everywhere in press releases from national gay rights organizations during the time. Quotes in papers from gay leaders. Saying that homosexuality is, in fact, innate. The human rights campaign starts passing out pamphlets and essays to its members and to members of Congress. With a born-this-way idea of homosexuality. It becomes explicitly a way to change the minds of the mainstream straight public. PFLAG, for instance. Parents and friends of lesbians and gays. Hires a consulting group to ask, among other things, how we should use the biology of sexual orientation in our activism. I knew it. (laughs) I just knew it. Because it's a very powerful narrative to tell parents that they did nothing wrong. It's confirming of what I've always felt in my heart. And even when he was little, I would would think, I couldn't be doing this many things wrong. Oh, that tape is, that's like... It's in her relief, you can you can hear she still so clearly thinks it's a defect. Yeah. And actually, in fact, in the report that the consulting group wrote for PFLAG, they write, quote, Explaining the source of homosexuality allows straight people to reassure themselves that sexuality is a given. If sexuality were a matter of choice or even contained some degree of choice and ambiguity, people would have to think about a volatile and complex dimension of human experience. Unquote. Whoa, keep that, keep that trap door shut. <laughs> it's um, just like, yeah, don't look at it at all. Don't think about it. Wow. Um, but so it's, it's like, it's like explicitly being used in that instance to like comfort a, a straight. Yeah, it's a majority straight public. And Joanna says by the time you get to 2003. The ACLU will tell canvassers doing door-to-door knocking in support of marriage equality to emphasize biology and immutability when they talk about why queer people should be able to get married. It was actually in that year, 03. Today it was gay rights and the law of the land will never be the same. The Supreme Court rules sodomy bans to be unconstitutional. Homosexual conduct is no longer a crime. Then 2004. Do you believe homosexuality is a choice? In a presidential debate, Democratic hopeful John Kerry... I think if you talk to anybody, uh, it's not choice. ...even says Vice President Dick Cheney's daughter, who was a lesbian... That she's being who she was. She's being who she was born as. A 2010 town hall... I don't think it's a choice. ...then President Barack Obama... I think that uh, people are born 
with you know a, a certain makeup. Also in 2010. It's called Born This Way. How beautiful in my way Cause God makes no mistakes I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way That's where it really got its wings. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, Born This Way around here really starts to, like, move through the culture. And Joanna points out, actually, that when Gaga put that song out... She's actually overtly campaigning for a repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. The continued ban on openly gay people in the military. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And on the heels of that song, Obama overturns Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And then, 2015, you've probably got one of the most incredible moments of Born This Way, which is when the Supreme Court overturns the ban on same-sex marriage. And even though the court doesn't rule on the immutability question, in the court's majority opinion, written by Justice Anthony Kennedy, he writes, quote, sexual orientation is both a normal expression of human sexuality and immutable, unquote. So that moment you see as just like full belief has permeated yeah. minds. Yeah, that it's everywhere. That feeling where you she was born it. Really know that you were born this way. And I can't born hate And now, okay, I will finally answer your question, um, <laughs> which is, if you remember, okay, so the 2018 Gallup poll about Born This Way. Yes. Yep. Okay. The one you yes. were part um, of, the, the sea of 50% of people who think <laughs> yeah, that people— I'm not on an island. I'm yeah. floating in a sea of <laughs> half of America who, um, that who believe that— Born that way? Born this way. Okay. So it turns out Gallup has, has, has actually been asking about this all the way back since 1977. And mm. in 1977, that number was at 13%. 13% of Americans believed Whoa. that somebody was born that wow. way. Wow. Okay. So that's like a really so, big leap in just a couple Yeah, it's a decades. total transformation. And actually, if you look at it on a graph, mm-hmm. which I'm going to do. Okay. Can I see? Because I had it. Do you want to look at it? Yeah. Okay, here. Okay, what am I looking at? A green line and a green okay, line. Okay, yeah, just look at the dark green line, which is born this way. And it's going, and it's spooky yeah, spikes it. in the 90s. Yeah, exactly. You see it's like a very slow climb through the 80s, and then boop. <laughs> and that's right like, after, like, it's like right after teens work, it just starts shooting up. Wow. So there's this nice correlation. Between growing acceptance of homosexuality and the belief that a homosexual person is born that way. But what's really cool is... In those surveys, you can then go in and ask people, what do you think about gay rights? What do you think about gay marriage? And there's been some research that shows that the number one shared characteristic of somebody who supports something like gay marriage Mm -hmm. is that they believe a person was born that way. Hmm. So that trumps political affiliation, geographic location. It was even stronger than your religious affiliation, which is quite remarkable. Wow. So— so it's like, regardless of how accurate or not it is, this belief they think is the thing changing minds politically? Right. Yeah, it's fascinating. But we don't have any way of saying that Born This Way is what led those folks to be supportive. And there have been some experimental public opinion research papers published in the last few years that kind of throw some cold water on that idea. 
And they argue that born this way is more of the way that a person who already supports gay civil rights expresses that support for Hmm. gay civil rights. So rather than born this way being the thing that causes you to change your opinion on homosexuality, it's just something that allows you to express an opinion that you already held. Yeah, and I think it's a little bit of both. And I mean, I think I've read that, like, media representation has also been a big thing in acceptance. And Yeah, I could give you one other thing that maybe might help. Sure. So there are a lot of recent public opinion scholars who have looked, Jeremiah Gerritsen in particular, he has this book where he looks at the importance of the HIV-AIDS crisis in kind of making gay and lesbians visible and visible in the media, but also visible to their family members and their social networks. And one way to think about what's happening here is as people are coming out and being forced to come out, this is precisely at the moment that the gay brain and the gay gene and all these kind of studies are being published and there's the media reaction and, oh gosh, now everyone's talking about born this way. And so we can definitely think of a lot of congruence there. People are coming out. Here's the story that the national organizations are giving to people. And if you look at NBC Nightly News, you might see someone like Dean Hammer talking about the implications of the gay gene study for your son or daughter. Okay. Before we go further, I just want to take like a tiny break. Okay. I can stay here. That was a lot of info. Uh, It was. So just like, short little break, refresh, come back. And when we come back? Um, Yeah, we'll get into the unraveling. Okay. Radio Lab will be back in a moment. Radiolab is supported by BetterHelp. Whether it's already 2 a.m. on a fun night out, graduation time, a new year, we can find ourselves wishing we had more time, wondering where it all went. But there's a question. If we were magically given that time back, what would we do with it? Perhaps you'd spend more time with a friend that you've lost touch with or petting your dog or just noticing the sweetness of doing nothing. The best way to let those special things into your life is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority going forward. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Radiolab today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Radiolab. When you see actor Danielle Brooks on the red carpet at the Oscars, she will be in full glamour and in grief. I've been with Sophia for so long. And I just know, like, after the Oscars, that chapter is really done. And that saddens me. I'm Kai Wright. A star of The Color Purple honors the role that shaped her career. Next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
Radio Lab, Lulu back with Matt. Okay, so the unraveling. So that idea Joanna mentioned about AIDS, that was a part of a book. The book put forward the idea that AIDS might be the actual, like, thing that changed American attitudes regarding homosexuality, Mm -hmm. which meant maybe Born This Way— Wasn't as much of a driver. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, And so that book book came out in 2018, and that same year— Researcher and Professor Lisa Diamond— True or false? out of the University of Utah. Sexual orientation is something you're born with. In 2018, she gives this TEDx talk that has like over half a million views at this point. Chances are that if you support LGBT rights, you said true. Which is essentially about the fact that born this way... There are three problems with the born that way argument. ...shouldn't exist anymore. First... It's not scientifically accurate. So, as you pointed out, a lot of the early research that became a part of Born This Way was very Mm male-focused. Diamond's own work... Over 20 years ago, I started a study... Focuses on women... Tracking over time, 100 women with different sexual identities. And her work shows how there's a lot of fluidity and plasticity in female sexuality. Some individuals start out exclusively attracted to one gender, and over time, they find themselves attracted to both genders. Or vice versa. And that it's not just women, that many people experience these changing desires or orientations over time. So basically, clearly, it's not set at birth. Right. There can be fluidity throughout a lifetime. Now let's move on to the second problem with the born that way argument, that it's not legally necessary. She points out that the Supreme Court never ruled on immutability. It never actually hitched its wagon to it. Right. So although we keep shouting, we're born this way, the courts have been saying, we don't care. Now for the third and most important problem with the born that way argument, that it's unjust. Diamond says, look, it creates a narrow definition of a lived sexual orientation, which excludes all sorts of people, but also as an argument in and of itself. We were born this way. You can't punish us for something that is not our fault. Now, do you see how that argument just goes along with the notion that being LGBT is a fault? That it's inherently sad and tragic. It's like, it's like we have this terrible disease and we need to be pitied instead of punished. Thankfully, times have changed. And if there's one thing that LGBT individuals want now, it is certainly not pity. What we want, what we deserve, is dignity, autonomy, self-determination, and that is our strongest argument for equality. So that was 2018. And then... 2019. A new study found there is no single gene that can determine a person's sexual orientation. Genetics, all grown up. There's this huge paper. Hundreds of thousands of people's genomes are sequenced, both men and women. What is being considered the largest genetic study on sexual behavior. And the researchers claim that unlike where Dean expected there would maybe be a dozen genes associated with sexual orientation. Now we know that there are thousands of genes involved. And we've identified a few. Complex human behaviors all work like this. And I talked to one of the co-authors of the big paper, Robbie Weedo, who was like, All human traits have a lot more to do with probability and statistics. 
that if you look at complex traits like depression or risk-taking behavior, there are thousands upon thousands of genes that might have this like little bit of an influence on what you become. And instead of deterministic, uh, it really just has a lot more to do with probability. The sort of likelihood of what your genes might lead you to become in an environment. And the way this study got reported on a lot, and the way it even got messaged, was that when it comes to sexual behavior, genetics plays a very, very limited role. And that a lot of this does indeed have to do with the environment. And what you start to see after all this... Now more than ever before... ...is this sort of explosion... Americans are openly identifying as LGBTQ. ...of people, especially in Gen Z, identifying as gay, bi, trans, queer. And what you see is a reaction to that... What the left used to tell you is, look, you're just born this way. ...is the right starts making all these arguments... The one thing we were told... ...about the environment... ...is that none of this has anything to do with culture. None of this has anything to do with nurture. None of this has anything to do with education. And so in Florida... So this is where you get the Florida bill. This is where you get... Groomer. The whole groomer thing. And all of a sudden, with her group of friends, they all decided they're trans. Quote, trans trenders. And she went on hormones. And social contagion theories. And this rise of anti-LGBTQ legislation... That says we're going to try to eliminate a lot of these kind of ways of, of being able to live one's life. And Joanna says even though... It seems like Born This Way is maybe unraveling. It's that anxiety. It's that real threat. That has kept the idea very much here in the world today. She says you see it in trans rights cases where lawyers bring in... Brain scans. Twin studies. Totally. You see it in the way that people talk about the fact that there's this jump in LGBTQ identity. That people are much more likely to be out. Now that the world is more tolerant... In an environment that accepts them, a community that accepts them, a family that accepts them, a country that accepts them. People can actually just be... We didn't just wake up one day and decide to be gay, lesbian, or bisexual. Who they always intrinsically were. It was never a choice. It was something we were born with. Of course we are born that way. And this is the thing, is if you believe that there's some sort of genetic basis for something like sexual orientation, it's almost like the born this way idea still kind of holds true. No, no, so... And when Dean and I would talk about this and talk about genes... I think they influence your des- what you particularly desire. He would emphasize the role he believes they play. And that's really important. That's what you're going to pursue in your life, most likely. And we would spend hours... Genes are having... Debating that role. ...a big influence, and that being the case... I guess there might, we, might have important, we might have a disagreement, though, on, on big influence. And Dean would cite studies that, that claim that if you look at sexual orientation, like 25% to 50% of that has to come from genetics. It's hard to get below. Although some would argue, some would argue lower. Oh, uh, yes. Okay, great. 8%. Fine. Great. <laughs> and I told Dean about this thing that Joanna had said that always stuck with me. That what may be happening is something that conservatives have always feared and that liberals could never bear to admit, which is that it might not be all about biology. That yes, we are biological beings, but we are a part of a very complex environment. And organisms change their environment and environments change organisms. Well, there's no evidence for any environmental effect, at least in men, zero. There's never been any study that showed any effect of the environment. It's important to recognize that. The environment meaning the shared environment, schools, language, religion, stuff like that. Stuff that's shared within a household. Does that mean in women there have been studies? No, I mean, none that that I could find. I mean, like, there's studies that show that sexual behavior is malleable, that, like, environmental circumstances will change how people have sex with one another. But there's nothing that shows, like, this thing here is what leads to 
a sense of orientation. And because of that, for Dean— I think that at the time of birth— Your orientation, gay, straight, or bi— That that is very, very strongly influenced by these innate factors that we have right from the very beginning. And we know what the effect is of saying, uh, you know, we don't know how this happens. It's not good. It's not good at all. So I'm not saying at all that that should be the basis of our arguments or our moral arguments or our law. But I think it's a pity if we if people don't know what's known. Yeah, but I I just don't know if much of anything is known. And if we do want to say that there are things that that we know about sexual orientation or something that like what we know to me still feels so, so small. I agree. We know about as much about sexual orientation as we know about um, depression or schizophrenia, which is not much. And I guess what I would just be wary of is confusing the idea that we don't know everything with the idea that there's nothing to know. I don't know why I'm trans. I just know that I am. But I think. By the time I was transitioning, I knew too much about some of these biological stories. And I knew I could start probing the past and that I could tell a story about why I did something when I was five years old. But kids are gender nonconforming in many different ways. I've, I've known many kids who played with dolls, cis boys who played with dolls for a period of their life and then don't. And it's, it's not this kind of story that you would hear like, if your little boy's playing with dolls, you can't give him a football because he's going to be gay at the end of the day and you should just accept the fact. I mean, that was the narrative. Um, I think these stories are too easy. I don't think they explain everyone's experience, but they are neat and tidy stories that tell us the way the world is, is the way the world was always meant to be. And it also that the born this way thing, that narrative doesn't protect us from conservatives who talk about, you know, trans trending, because the fact of the matter is there is much, much more identification with gender diverse identities and and living sexuality out in different ways. And I think we're backing ourselves up into a corner if we don't kind of correct course a little bit. Well, so what is the correct course if it's not making these sorts of scientific arguments about biology born this way, immutability? Well, I, yeah, I think that... Um, I wrote the book in part because I've grown a little bit kind of wary of the kind of queer theory accounts that say, oh, we should just get rid of any kind of involvement with scientific or medical expertise when we're fighting for political equality. Oh, is that a thing that people are talking about? Yeah, I think it, I think it's a thing you, you hear in academia. Okay. And you might hear it in some kind of more left-leaning queer smaller activist groups. Which is like, get rid of science. We don't need science anymore. Yeah, but I would not be so willing to say that I don't want a gender identity clinician coming to court and saying that trans kids should have access to gender-affirming health care because if you don't give it to them, they might experience trauma. They could even die. And you don't need a biological story to explain why that's the case because those studies that prove that don't investigate the sources of identity. They just say that if you punch someone, it's going to hurt. And I'm okay with that kind of scientific authority. 
and it seems to have a lot more credibility than an assertion that we know of a gay gene or that we're so close to finding a gay gene, which is just, we're nowhere near that. And I don't think we ever will be. Reporter Matthew Kilty. This episode was reported and produced by Matt Kilty, with original music by Matt as well. Dialogue with mixing help from Ariane Wack. Fact checking by Diane Kelly. Uh, and some news: Joanna's dissertation is coming out as a book in mere days. It's called "Born This Way: Science, Citizenship, and Inequality in the American LGBTQ Plus Movement." Born This Way by Joanna Wiest. Check it out. Um, Also, huge special thanks. A ton of very smart people weighed in with edits to help us navigate through this thorny, complex history. Big thanks to Sean McKeithen, Joe Osmondson, Jennifer Breyer, Maddie Sophia, Daniel Levine Spound, Heather Radke, and Ellie Mistal. Additional special thanks to Angela Pachuli, Carl Zimmer, Eric Turkheimer, Andrea Ghana, Chandler Burr, Jacques Baltazar, Mike's breakfast sandwiches, and a huge thank you to the Lesbian Her Story archives for letting us use some of their oral histories of founders and members of the Daughters of Bilitis. Uh, The Her Story archives are so cool. I highly recommend you check them out. That'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being. Catch you next week. Radiolab was created by Jad Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, Aketi Foster-Keys, W. Harry Fortuna, David Gable, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sindhu Nyana Sambadam, Matt Kilty, Annie McEwen, Alex Neeson, Sara Kari, Anna Raskuet Paz, Alyssa Jong Perry, Sarah Sambak, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster, with help from Timmy Broderick. Our fact checkers are Diane Kelly, Emily Krieger, and Natalie Middleton. Hi, I'm Erica in Yonkers. Leadership support for Radiolab Science Programming is provided by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative, and the John Templeton Foundation. Foundational support for Radiolab was provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. 